Chapter Twelve of Dwellers in the Hills by Melville Davison Post. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter Twelve: The Uses of the Moon. When I turned about in the saddle, I found that El Mahdi had passed both my companions, who were stock still in the road a half a dozen paces behind me. I pulled him up and called to them, "What mare's nest have you found now?" They replied that some horse had lately passed in a gallop. One could tell by the long jumping and the deep, ploughing hoof-prints. "'Come on,' said I. "'Woodford's devils haven't crossed. What do we care?' "'But it's mighty big jumpin,' answered the hunchback. "'Maybe,' I responded, laughing. "'The cow that jumped over the moon took a running start there.' "'If she did,' said Ump, "'I'll just find out if any of the Hortons saw her going.' Then he shouted, "'Hey, Dan'l, who crossed ahead of us?' The long bulk of the ferryman loomed in the door. "'It was Twiggs,' he answered. I heard Judd cursing under his breath. Twiggs was the head groom of Cynthia Carper, and when he ran a horse like that the devil was to pay. I gripped the reins of El Mahdi's bridle until he began to rear. "'He must have been in a hurry,' said Ump. "'Pears like it,' responded the boatman, turning back into his house. "'He lit out pretty brisk.' Ump shook the reins of his bridle and went by me in a gallop. The cardinal passed at my knee, and I followed, bending over to keep the flying sand out of my eyes. The moon was rising, a red wheel behind the shifting fog, and under its soft light the world was a ghost land. We rode like phantoms, the horse's feet striking noiselessly in the deep sand, except where we threw the dead sycamore leaves. My body swung with the motions of the horse, and Ump and Judd might have been a part of the thing that galloped under their saddles. The art of riding a horse cannot be learned in half a dozen lessons in the academy on the avenue. It does not lie in the crook of the knee or the angle of the spine. It does not lie in the make of the saddle, or the multiplicity of snaffle reins, nor does it lie in the thirty-nine articles of my lady's riding-master. But it is embraced in the grasp of one law that may be stated in a line, and perhaps learned in a dozen years. Be a part of the horse. The mastery of an art, be it what you like, does not consist in the comprehension of its basic law. The appreciation of this truth is indispensable, it cannot avail to ape the manner of the initiate. I have seen dapper youths booted and spurred, riding horses in the park, rising to the trot and holding the ball of the foot just so in the iron of the stirrup, and if the horse had bent his body, they would have gone sprawling into the bramble bushes. Yet these youngsters believed that they were riding like Her Majesty's cavalry, the ogled gallants of every strolling lass. I have seen begloved clubmen with an English accent worrying a good horse that they understood about as well as a problem in mechanics or any line of Horace. And I have seen my lady sitting a splendid mount, with the reins caught properly in her fingers and her back as straight as a whip-staff, and I would have wagered my life that every muscle in her little body was as rigid as a rock and her knee as numb as the conscience of a therapeutist. Look, if you please, at the mud-stained cavalryman who has lived his days and nights in the saddle, 
or the cattle-drover who has never had any home but his pigskin seat. And mark you what a part of the horse he is. Hark back to these models when you are listening to the vaporings of a riding-master, lately expatriated from the stables of Sir Henry. To ride well is to recreate the fabulous centaur of Thessaly. We raced over the mile of sand road in fewer minutes than it takes to write it down here. There was another factor, new come into the problem, and we meant to follow it close. Expedition has not been too highly sung. An esoteric novelist hath it that a pygmy is as good as a giant, if he arrive in time. At the end of this mile, below Horton's Ferry, the road forks, and there stands a white signboard with its arms crossed, proclaiming the ways to the travelling stranger. The cattle Ward had bought were in two droves. Four hundred were in the lands of Nicholas Marsh, perhaps three miles further down the Valley River, and the remaining two hundred a mile or two south of the crossroads at David Westfall's. Ub swung his horse around in the fork of the road. Boys, he said, we'll have to divide up. I'll go over to old Westfall's, and you bring up the other cattle. I'll make King David help to the forks. "'What about twigs?' said I. "'To hell with twigs,' said he. "'If he gets in your way, throat him.' Then he clucked to the Bay Eagle and rode over the hill, his humped back rising and falling with the gallop of the mare. We slapped the reins on our horses' necks and passed on to the north, the horses nose to nose, and my stirrup-leather brushing the giant's knee at every jump of Almaty. The huge cardinal galloped in the moonlight like some splendid machine of bronze, never a misstep, never a false estimate, never the difference of a finger's length in the longs, even jumps. It might have been the one-eyed Agib riding his mighty horse of brass, except that no son of a decadent sultan ever carried the bulk of orange Judd. And the eccentric El Mahdi. There was no cause for fault-finding on this night. He galloped low and easily, gathering his grey legs as gracefully as his splendid, nervous mother. I watched his mane fluttering in the stiff breeze, his slim ears thrust forward, the moon shining on his steel-blue hide. For once he seemed in sympathy with what I was about. Seemed, I write it, for it must have been a mistaken fancy. This splendid, indifferent rascal shared the sensations of no living man. Long and long ago he had sounded life and found it hollow. Still, as if he were a woman, I loved him for this accursed indifference. Was it because his emotions were so hopelessly inaccessible, or because he saw through the illusion we were chasing, or because, because, who knows what it was? We have no litmus paper test for the charm of genius." Under us the dry leaves crackled like twigs snapping in a fire, and the flying sand cut the bushes along the roadway like a storm of whizzing hailstones. In the wide water of the valley river the moon flitted, and we led her lively race. When I was little I had a theory about this moon. The old folks were all wrong about its uses. Lightening the night was a piece of incidental business. It was there primarily as a door into and out of the world. Through it we came, carried down from the hilltops on the backs of the crooked men, and handed over to the old black mammy who unwrapped us trembling by the firelight. Then we squalled lustily, and they said, 
a child is born. When a man died, as we have a way of saying, he did but go back with these same crooked men through the golden door of the world. Had I not seen the moon standing with its rim on the eastern ridge of the Seely Hill when they found old Jerry Lance lying stone dead in his house? And had I not predicted with an air of mysterious knowledge that Jordan would recover when Red Mike threw him? The sky was moonless, and he could not get out if he wished. Besides, there was a lot of mystery about this getting into the world. Often when I was little, I had questioned the elders closely about it, and their replies were vague, clothed in subtle and bedizzening generalities. They did not know, that was clear, and since they were so abominably evasive, I was resolved to keep the truth locked in my own bosom and let them find out about it the best way they could. Once, in a burst of confidence, I broached the subject to old Liza and explained my theory. She listened with a grave face, and said that I had doubtless discovered the real truth of the matter, and that I ought to explain it to a waiting world. But I took a different view, swore her to secrecy, and rode away on a peeled gumstick horse named Alhambra, the son of the wind. While the horses ran, I speculated on the possible mission of Twigs, but I could find no light, except that, of course, it augured no good to us. I think Judd was turning the same problem, for once in a while we could hear him curse, and the name of Twiggs flitted among the anathemas. We had hoped for a truce of trouble until we came up to Woodford beyond the Valley River. But here was a minion of Cynthia, riding the country like Paul Revere. My mind ran back to the saucy miss on the ridge of Thornburg's Hill, and her enigmatic advice, blurted out in a moment of pique. This Twiggs was colder baggage. But, Lord love me, how they both ran their horses. Three miles soon slipped under a horse's foot, and almost before we knew it we were travelling up to Nicholas Marsh's gate. Judd lifted the wooden latch, and we rode down to the house. Ward said that Nicholas Marsh was the straightest man in all the cattle business, scrupulously clean in every detail of his trades. Many a year Ward bought his cattle without looking at a bullock of them. If Marsh said, Good tops and midland tails, the good ones of his drove were always first class, and the bad ones rather above the ordinary. The name of Marsh was good in the hills, and his word was good. I doubt me if a man can leave behind him a better fame than that. The big house sat on a little knoll among the maples, overlooking the valley river. The house was of grey stone, built by his father, and stood surrounded by a porch, swept by the maple branches, and littered with saddles, saddle blankets, long rope halters, bridles, salt sacks, heavy leather hobbles, and all the workaday gear of a cattle grazier. There was a certain air of strangeness in the way we were met at Nicholas Marsh's house. I do not mean inhospitality, rather the reverse, with a tinge of embarrassment, as of one entertaining the awkward guest. We were evidently expected, and a steaming supper was laid for us. Yet, when I sat at the table and Judd with his plate by the smouldering fire, we were not entirely easy. Marsh walked through the room, backward and forward, with his hands behind him, and a great lock of his iron-gray hair throwing shadows across his face. Now and then he put some query about the grass, or my brother's injury, or the condition of the road, 
and then turned about on his heel. His fine open face wore traces of annoyance. It was plain that there had been here some business not very pleasing to this honourable man. When I told him we had come for the cattle, muscles of his jaw seemed to tighten. He stopped and looked me squarely in the face. "'Well, Quiller,' he said, with what seemed to me to be unnecessary firmness, "'I shall let you have them.' I heard Judd turn sharply in his chair. "'Let me have them. Is there any trouble about it?' The man was clearly embarrassed. He bit his lip and twisted his neck abound in his collar. "'No,' he said, hesitating in his speech. "'There isn't any trouble. Still a man might demand the money at the scales. He would have a right to do that.' My pulse jumped. So this was one of their plans, those devils. And we had never one of us dreamed of it. If the money were demanded at the scales it would mean delay— and delay would mean Woodford would win. So this was Twig's part in the ugly work. No wonder he ran his horse. Trust a woman for jamming through the devil's business. Nothing but the good fibre of this honourable man had saved us. But Westfall, he was lighter stuff. How about Westfall? I looked up sharply into the troubled face of the honest man. How about the other cattle? I faltered. "'Shall we get them?' "'Who went for them?' he asked. "'Ump,' I replied. "'He left us at the crossroads.' "'The man took the watch out of his pocket "'and studied it for a moment. "'Yes,' he said. "'You will get them.' "'It was put like some confident opinion "'based upon the arrival of an event. "'Mr. Marsh,' I said. "'Are you afraid of Ward? "'Isn't he good for the money?' "'Don't worry about that, my boy,' he answered, taking up the candlestick. "'I have said that you shall have the cattle, and you shall have them. "'Let me see about a bed for you.' "'Then he went out, closing the door after him. "'I turned to Judd, and he pointed his finger to a letter lying on the mantelpiece. "'I arose and picked it up. "'It bore Cynthia's seal and was open. "'Let us forgive, little Miss Pandora.' old Jupiter ought to have known better, and the dimpled wife of Bluebird, that forbidden door was so tremendously alluring. I think I should have pulled the letter out of its envelope, had I not feared that this man would return, and find it in my fingers. I showed the seal to Judd, and replaced it on the mantelpiece. He slapped his leg. Twigs brought that, he said, and he's gone on to Westfalls. What does it say? "'I didn't read it,' I answered. "'The man heaved his shoulders up almost to his ears. "'Quiller,' he said, "'you can't root if you have a silk nose.' "'I think I should have fallen, "'but at this moment Nicholas Marsh came back with his candle "'and said we ought to sleep if we wished an early start in the morning. "'I followed him up the bare stairway to my room on the north side of the house. "'He placed the candlestick on the table, promised to call me early.' then bade me good-night and went away. I watched his broad back disappear in the shadow of the hall. Then I closed the door and latched it. Rigid honesty has its disadvantages. Here was a man almost persuaded to insist upon a right that was valid but unusual, and deeply worried because he had almost yielded to the urging. It takes good men to see the fine shades of such a thing. 
There was a broad window in this room, with the bare limbs of the maples brushing against its casement. I looked out before I went to bed. Beyond the valley river, great smoky shadows cloaked the hills, gilded along their borders by the rising moon, hills that sat muffled in the foldings of their robes, waiting for the end, waiting for man to play out the game and quit, and the great manager to pull down his scenery. I blew out the candle, and presently slept as one sleeps when he is young. Sometimes in the night I sat bolt upright in the bed to listen. I had heard, or was I dreaming, floating up from some far distance, the last faint echo of that voice of Parson Pepper's. And the ravens they did feed him, fare ye well, fare ye well. I sprang out of bed and pressed my face against the window. There was no sound in the world. Below, the valley river looked like a plate of burnished yellow metal. Under the enchanted moon it was the haunted water of the fairy. No mortal went singing down its flood, surely, unless he sailed in the ship that the tailors sewed together, or went a-dreaming in that mystic barge rowed by the fifty daughters of Danius. I crept back under the woven coverlid. This was haunted country, and Parson Peppers was doubtless snoring in a bed. End of chapter 12